0: Welcome to the Blair Technique Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Stenberg. In this episode, uh, we're digging into the archives a little bit. This is going to be a special episode, actually a series of episodes, that share a little bit more historical context for the Blair Technique from the perspective of one doctor, Dr. Elmer Addington. Now, Dr. Addington was Dr. Blair's last associate doctor, and he took over the operations of the original Blair Clinic in Lubbock, Texas, uh, right up until Dr. Elder, uh, who's currently serving in the Blair clinic there in Lubbock, uh, moved over to take the reins. So Dr. Addington was a really interesting guy. He was someone that had a breadth of training in upper cervical chiropractic, uh, had some experience as an instructor at a chiropractic college, and was a mentor of mine up until he passed away a few years ago. We would chat on a pretty consistent basis uh, from the time I started into practice, uh, just asking questions about technique and life, and you know, we talked about a lot of different topics. So before you hear the audio, let me quickly explain the nature of these episodes. Uh, That'll be released kind of in a sequence here. Uh, The audio interviews were originally conducted by Dr. Jeff Hanna for some research regarding the history of the Blair Technique. So you'll hear in the background, he'll occasionally comment, you'll hear him typing notes uh, in the background as well, and these recordings were not originally intended to be shared widely, Uh, But in talking with Dr. Hannah, we decided that there were a lot of gems in these conversations that were worth sharing with a broader audience. One more thing to consider on the topic before we get into the interview, um, that these are just the recollections, opinions, and perspectives of one man based on his experiences. Some of you that have been involved with the Blair organization for decades may have differences of opinion about some of what he has to say, and that's okay. Uh, The point of sharing these audio interviews is to introduce our listeners to Dr. Addington's point of view. And to give a first-hand account from someone who worked closely with Dr. Blair for a period of time. Okay, so now that I've set the stage, please enjoy this first interview with Dr. Addington describing how he got involved with upper cervical chiropractic and how he came to be the last student of Dr. Blair, as well as his clinical successor at the Blair Clinic of Chiropractic in Lubbock, Texas. Enjoy.
1: Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show.
2: I entered Palmer in 1976 and uh, graduated in 1981, and um, at that point I had studied a number of techniques. I had studied four upper cervical techniques specifically. There was the, the what was taught as the toggle recoil technique in third trimester at Palmer. Um, now, curiously enough, Dr. Blair was not happy with that mm-hmm. because they were not teaching the full B.J. torque. Mm-hmm. And he visited campus and said, why are we not teaching the full B.J. torque? And the answer that he got was that B.J. was not really successful in teaching that torque to very many people. And... Um, So And they specifically couldn't figure out how to teach the students in a mass classroom setting how to stay on the contact and in control of the torque throughout the length of the thrust. And so what they decided to do was teach them what they could teach them. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when when the Palmer toggle course that I had, and I suppose that you had, was taught, that was not the original B.J., Torque. That was a modification of it, mm-hmm. uh, but that was one of the upper cervical courses I had. I had the uh, the NUCO work was not on campus at those days, but Marshall Dick Sr. kept coming to the research department um, where I was working. I was privileged to, to uh, be hired as a research assistant and uh, later went to full-time faculty, part-time student and taught some courses and did some accreditation work. But, um, I studied the NUCA work, and Marshall DeColt Sr., who did the blood pressure study, mm-hmm. was my uh, doctor in, in Chicago.
1: Mm-hmm. And I went to, uh, I guess, at least three of the NUCA conferences and took the
2: NUCA courses. And uh, I'd studied the Grostick work with John David Grostick, who was the son of the developer of the work, John Francis Grostick somewhere in my brain I have it that the grostic work was introduced by John Francis in 1941. Now, that may or may not be correct. Mm-hmm. But um, John David said that um, uh, there had been an attempt at rapprochement between the Nuka faction and uh, and his faction. When when John Francis died, I the way I've understood it, John David was still in undergraduate school.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, Ralph Gregory and... Um, and uh, uh, John Francis Grostic had been collaborators. They lived a- apart, and uh, there was a there was a split. And Gregory, of course, uh, people may remember, he had a badly red- repl- repaired cleft palate, and so he spoke very nasally, and he was not comfortable with public speaking, and so he was sort of a lab man. John Francis was the the teacher of the work and it was called the Grostick work. Well, when John Francis passed, and there's a story about that too that you might want to hear someday.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Apparently Mrs. Grostick put all the research data away and said that's for John David when he becomes a chiropractor. Mm -hmm. So there was this big political split between uh, what became the Nuka work and uh, what became the various branches of the Grostick work. And uh, the merits of that, I I know nothing of. Um, But uh, John David told me that uh, he met with the Nuka people one time, and there was, you know, there was an an attempted rapprochement, and it just. Uh, status study due and so they asked me to stay and and, uh, and write that so I did and then went on the faculty at Texas Chiropractic College in November of 1981 mm-hmm. I had subsequently to, uh, had to had to take an addition, had to take public health again because I didn't have statutory prereqs at Palmer and in the, in the undergraduate work that I had that were written into the Texas law. So I had to go three more hours of any kind of zoology. And so that's what I did. And um,
1: went on the faculty of Texas Chiropractic College, was hired to teach technique, Mm -hmm.
2: and was very happy down there. Um, There was academic freedom for the first time that I'd ever experienced in chiropractic. Um, They piggybacked me onto some ongoing studies and very cordial. And indeed, they made curriculum space in 12th quarter for an upper cervical elective, and which, to my knowledge, had never taught anything but manipulative work for the upper cervical. Uh, their, their technique curriculum was a good curriculum. It was primarily manipulative, primarily diversified in Gonstead with some other things. They had a nice elective program. They had Logan Basic, and they had SOT, and they had several other things. But they actually made curriculum space and I was teaching an upper cervical course in 12th quarter. And it was a full classroom. There were, there were a, lot of, a lot of people that were interested in that. Uh, in, the, uh, in 82, I got my state license and continued it at, at Texas College. Christmas break of 83, I was visiting my parents near Fort Worth, Texas. And I'd heard of the Blair work, and I knew that Sterling and Mary Ann Pruitt at the Pruitt Clinic in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, were practicing the Blair work. And so I called them, and I said, "You know, I'm I'm uh, an instructor at Texas Chiropractic College, and I can't remember if I had right by then or not, but I, yeah, I, I did. It was a it was a assistant professor at that time, and." Um, could I come and just be a mouse in the corner and observe the flare work at your practice for a few days? And they were very cordial and allowed me to do that. Now, what I did not realize was that this was not permitted. They considered everything they did in there to be a family secret, and they were very protective of their method of practice and of everything they did. But I, I went in for a couple of days, and I observed them, Um, They had a a huge waiting room with single chairs all the way around the perimeter of the room. And by 8 o'clock in the morning, they were open six days a week, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And by 8 a.m., there was a seat on every chair. And uh, you made your own appointments in ink in the appointment book as you left. And when they would start in, they would open that door and say, first four. And six or eight people would stand up, and then you know uh, some of those would back down, and the four would go into this little preparatory room where there were instructions to loosen your tie and you know take off your jewelry and so forth. And then they would call them in one by one into the uh, neurocalligraph room, and I think it was a Model A. We were using a Model B when I came to the Blair Clinic, but I think this was the old Model A. Mm. And they ran a graph, period. That's all they did. And if the patient had a a heat break in the upper cervical spine, they got an adjustment that day, period, stop, halt. No leg check, no come back in a few days, none of that. And so I got to watch Sterling and Mary Ann both adjust. And then after, uh, I think it was by that afternoon, Mary Ann had one of the CAs pull some Blair views and sat me down to read those. And she explained to me, she turned the skull upside down and moved an atlas on it. And um, Mary uh, had a a husky kind of forced voice that I don't know, I hear it mostly among Texas women. But you know, I heard her, she came up and, and, you know, with the skull and moved atlas back and forth on it, tracking it, and uh, this way and that, and said, see here, moves like this, got it? Mm-hmm. And uh, I did. And uh, so she sat me down to read Blairviews. And after about an hour, she came in and says, okay, what's that? And I said, well, I believe that's a PIR. She hollers out down the hall, Daddy, he's seeing up And so uh, I got to spend a couple of days observing. And then on, on uh, Friday evening, no, I'm sorry, it was Saturday evening, Uh, Sterling and I went to dinner, went to get Mexican food. Now, they were very particular. You could not eat onions or garlic any day you were seeing a patient or any day before you were seeing a patient. So Saturday night after work was the only time all week you could eat Mexican food or anything containing onions or garlic. So we talked, and Sterling said, I recommend you come back Monday at 7 p.m. I'm giving the new patient lecture. Um, he, gave it, he gave it twice a month, and during your first month of care, you were required to attend that new patient lecture one of those two occasions, or you were dropped as a patient. And I appeared Monday and uh, at 7 p.m., and uh sterling crammed a hershey bar a chocolate bar into his mouth and and went in there and started his lecture It was 55 minutes exactly and there were like 30 35 people in there in folding chairs in his large office and he walked back and forth in his white coat three or four times before he finally turned and looked at the audience and said now ladies and gentlemen you'll be driving down the road and you'll see a little place with a sign up that says car but beware, the contents within is not always what the label indicates. And so that's where he started, and by the end of 55 minutes, he had even the most hostile patients on the edge of their chairs and fully committed to upper cervical chiropractic and the Blair work, and there was nothing else. And uh, fortunately, I did not go to work for them. Um, but meanwhile, I had noticed that all they were doing basically was rotary cervicals at Texas College and some Gonstead work. There was a Gonstead elective, I believe, taught by a tiny little woman who was a National College graduate. And um, there was also a regent, I believe it was Dr. Eugene C. Fields, and he did the crane condyle lift, which was just a violent, hideous procedure. I became physically ill watching it. Uh, I had to leave the room. I, I couldn't watch it. And um, so uh, I was looking for a way to get out of Houston. But meanwhile, I wanted to write up using some of the Blair principles that I'd learned in the Pruitt's office in the Christmas of 1983. And I'd come up with a manipulative adjustment that was in my mind, based on the, the Blair principles and that in my mind was better than the rotary brakes that they were accustomed to and the gods did. And so I wrote it up, but I wanted to credit Dr. Blair with the concepts that, that I was using there. And I couldn't find his work anywhere in the literature. Um, his papers were 1964 and 1968 in the in fact, he had the whole uh, 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 first edition in 1964 of the ICA's International Review of Chiropractic Scientific Edition, and um, then he segmentalized that for subsequent publication in the ICA Journal in, the, in 1968, and um, maybe lapsed over into sixty nine and, uh, and published it again, and um, so I wanted to credit these concepts and I didn't know where to find them because there were no indexing tools at that time. So I thought that Dr. Blair lived in Lubbock, Texas. I've been told he was. I wasn't sure if he was still alive or not. So I called information for Lubbock, Texas and got a number. Sure enough, they had a listing for a Dr. William G. Blair. And I called that number on a Saturday afternoon. And uh, some old gentleman says, hello. And uh, I said, "Uh, is this Dr. Blair speaking? And something came over me. And I said, is this the Dr. William G. Blair? And you could just hear him straighten up. And he had a hideous, uh, a hideous kyphosis, hideous spinal distortions and had had a very, very bad case of asthma all of his life since he was seven months old. But you could hear him straighten up and cleared his throat and says, yes, this is Dr. Blair speaking, how can I help you? And I told him who I was and what I wanted. And we had a very brief, but very intense chiropractic conversation. He sent me copies of his papers and I duly credited him with the concepts that I used in this manipulative adjustment that I have published uh, being on the technique faculty at Texas chiropractic College okay fine uh, wonderful I got to talk to dr. Blair on the phone uh, then some things happened and uh, I don't want to get I don't want to get all religious here but this was a god thing but I prayed one night in my sleep in my dream and what I prayed was give me a place I don't care where it is just give me a place and a reason to be there and that was a very unusual thing for me to have been praying in the first place or to have prayed that particular prayer because I had a list of requirements as long as your arm of the perfect place where I would eventually settle down but um I prayed this, and it was so alarming that it woke me up, and um, it was a matter of days that Dr. Blair called me back, and he explained that the young doctor who had been working for him had um, resigned on short notice. This is a young doctor that I believe came to work, and I don't know what his title was, in 1980, but in April of 1982, Dr. Blair fell asleep checking legs on a prone on a high-low table, fell asleep standing up. He was getting so little air and uh, fell over and he had to retire. And so this young doctor took over and his title was staff doctor. And he was Dr. Blair's employee. And uh, he then took over patient care for a period of a couple years. So he calls me and says, do you want to come to Lubbock, Texas and be my last student and buy my clinic uh, and take over as director of the Blair Clinic? And um, this was in May, early, early May, and uh, or late April of 1984. And I said, oh, yes, I'd love to do that, and, you know, I'll have to give notice at Texas College. And, you know, I want to go to the new convention this fall, so maybe this fall we could do that. And Dr. Blair says, no, you don't understand. This either happens within the next month or there's nothing to pass along. And so I flew up here to meet Dr. Blair and to see the practice. And... Um, when when he rejected the young doctor's offer, the doctor gave one month's notice, and so Doctor Blair rejected that offer and called me. And I I flew up here to to Lubbock from Houston to see the practice and meet him. Doctor Blair met me at the airport. He had on a suit. Uh, he was proud of being one of the best dressed chiropractors in the world. He never he said he didn't even go to Seven Eleven at ten o'clock at night without a suit on. And he met me at the airport with a suit. He had his uh, oxygen tank with him, a portable oxygen tank. And uh, he'd been on oxygen quite a while um, since he'd had to retire, basically. Um, when he was 19 years old, the doctor said, you won't see 25, live hard and fast. And um, what he had done was he had moved to El Paso, Texas, and was selling insurance for the Globe Globe, uh, Life Insurance Company. And there's where he courted uh, Beatrice Kobold. And um, they had a family friend who was a chiropractor, a woman who was a manipulative chiropractor. And uh, she would visit uh, the family in El Paso, Mrs. Blair's family. time and she would set her set her suitcases down and immediately manipulate everybody in the family and then take off her coat and, and stay a while but she said you know you need to see this doctor and so she sent him to Leon Halstead in El Paso who was a, a Grostic practitioner and that was Dr. Blair's first help that he'd ever had with a severe asthma and on the strength of that, uh, he went to Palmer College. Dr. Halstead, uh, actually, when when uh, Dr. Blair married Beatrice Cobold Blair, um, they um, were on the way to Palmer College and they got as far as Wichita, Kansas. And there was a little Jake Legg school of some type there. And so Dr. Blair was doing so poorly and he said, let's just stop here, and I'll go to school here. And Dr. Holstead was on his way to Palmer Homecoming, and he said, no, this won't do. And he stopped at Wichita and picked up Dr. Blair and took him to Palmer. So Dr. Blair and Mrs. Blair moved to Davenport, Iowa. She worked in the typing pool, which was an unheated Quonset hut containing 75 or 100 women at typing pool. At the typewriters at the Alcoa Aluminum Plant down on the river in Bettendorf and uh, she worked there in, in in her coat and in her mittens and her toboggan in her gloves and and typed and that's how he got through school his classmates would carry him up the stairs and down the stairs uh, but the, the, the upper cervical adjustment he got from Leon Halstead was the first help he had ever had with his severe ad. And uh, it was just as bad as it gets from the age of seven months. I could kind of see an uncle maybe dandling him and, and missing and, you know, grabbing the head or something. Mm-hmm. But um, that's, that's how he came to be a chiropractor. And that's, that's how I met him was at the airport when he appeared with his oxygen and in a suit. And um, first thing he showed me in Lubbock was Prairie Dog Town. Well, we, well, I better show you Prairie Dog Town. That was the big tourist attraction in those days, and they had an enclosure for the Prairie Dogs, which had been thought to be endangered at that point. But uh, we saw the clinic, and we talked, and we reached agreement, and I went back to Houston and resigned at 2.30 on Friday afternoon of Memorial Day weekend, walked into the president's office, Dr. Johnny Baxter Barfoot. A fine man from Mississippi, the second president, I believe, of that college, and um, or at least once it had moved to Houston. It used to be in San Antonio and used to be a straight school, but it moved. I think it was founded in 1908 uh, by the Drains Drain family, but it moved to Houston in 1964 and it became quite a different school. And uh, they they had a a president. William D. Harper, that was president for a long, long time, and Dr. Barfoot was the second president after they moved to Pasadena, suburb of Houston. And I walked in and I said uh, on this Friday afternoon before Memorial Day weekend, Listen, I know this is not right. I know it's the middle of a trimester. I know I'm under contract. Sue me if you must but I will not be here Tuesday morning. There is something I must go do. And uh, I've just been promoted to associate professor and I did not know that I was about to become technique department head. And I was glad I didn't know that because I would have stayed for that and I would have been dead 20 years ago without the Blair work. But I said, you know, here's the lesson plans. Here's the grade book. Here's the final exam. Here's my replacement's resume ready to uh, take over Tuesday when the classes uh, start and take over the upper cervical class he lives 30 miles down the road yes he's CCE qualified and dr. Blairfoot said well but this is just not acceptable I said well acceptable or not this is what's going to happen and I'm very sorry but this has to happen and so I came up here and dr. Blair, Uh, The young doctor left at the end of May of 1984. Dr. Blair gave me a 10-day tutorial at his home. And he did that out of the old leather zipper notebook that had his teaching notes in it with the same set of slides and everything that he used in the primary and advanced seminars. And it was really laborious for him because he was getting so little oxygen that he would fall asleep in the middle of a sentence. And we would start at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, Like most patients with lung disorders and lung problems, the symptoms were much worse at night. So he stayed up all night and then went to bed about dawn and then tried to sleep till noon or so and then get up and, and have breakfast and get ready. And so we would start at 2 in the afternoon and we would go until you know, midnight or however long he could stand it. Some days that was 30 minutes. Some days it was eight hours. But he would frequently fall asleep in the middle of a sentence. And then he would, uh, it was just torture to him. Um, and he would wake up and say, Oh, Doc, I'm I'm sorry, I got a little sleepy there. Where was I? And then he would pick up again. So after the 10 days of tutorial, I reopened the clinic as uh It was either June 10th or June 11th of 1984. I'm sorry, June 11th or June 12th. I never could remember which one. He taught me the first through the 10th of June. And um, so we reopened the clinic, and uh, the books were full. Two patients every 15 minutes. uh, Guts, feathers, and all. All adjustments were worked in. And the waiting room was full. And so uh, that's how I came to be here. He continued to teach me. I took new patient films over there almost every night uh, for except uh, Sunday nights for, oh, close to 12 months. I started to, to cut back on that and he would call the office and, uh, well, he's with the patient. This is Dr. Blair. You call him to the phone right now. And I'd get him on the phone, I'd come to the phone and he'd say, doc, you didn't come over last night. Are you making a failure? Can you not get any patients? Are you going under down there? And um, so with every set of new patient films, uh, he went over those and he uh, taught me the adjustments and taught me the, the tricks of films and the fine points of films and, and of the Blair adjustments uh, for 15 months before he died. Uh, in 1985, uh, September 26th of 1985. And so uh, um, he was very, very much a B.J. follower. He said, B.J. was aware of my work. It would be easy for me to say he approved my work, but that would not be true. He never specifically approved my work, but he was aware of it. And he showed me a telegram uh, that B.J. had sent him when he, uh, when he dedicated the new building in 1955 that I practiced in, that he practiced in from that day until 1982. Um, and B.J. had sent him a telegram congratulating him on opening the clinic. Uh, he had started out here in uh, 1949, had his first patient in the, on Christmas Eve of 1949, And he and Donnie were living in a little shotgun house down at uh, the back lot of 19th Street and Avenue S. And uh, just one room led into the other so you could open all the doors and shoot a shotgun through the house and not hit anything. Mm -hmm. And he practiced in the first two rooms. I think there was a waiting room and there was uh, the the adjusting room and then there was the x-ray and then he and Donnie lived in the back room and there was a kitchen. And uh, they opened in 1949, and by 1955, May of 55, he had built a new building at the edge of town at 3410 Avenue Q. And uh, 34th Street was a major east-west commercial street in those days, and four blocks south of that, 38th Street was the last paved street in Lubbock. So he was on the way out of town and had this big, impressive building that he had built, Impressive, for those days. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a plaque on that building dedicating the building to to B.J. Palmer. Mm -hmm. So I had to work tutorially from him for 15 months before he went in the hospital to finally die. Mm -hmm. And um, I visited him in the hospital uh, the last time. And uh, as I left, I said, Doc, is there anything I can do for you? And he thought I meant adjusting him. And he sat bolt upright in bed, as sick as he was, and said, No, as far as I'm concerned, I'm holding my adjustments. So he was, you know, he was a true believer till the last. And I never caught him with a short leg. Dr. Charles E. Spears, Chuck Spears, 140 miles south of here in Odessa, Texas, was his chiropractor. And... Um, Dr. Spears had been a a grostic practitioner and he had a short condyle and the Grostic people were adjusting him on the wrong side for 12 years. And they had him, his listing was ASL, they were adjusting him as a right laterality. And so they were driving him further and further into his misalignment. And they had his liver shut down and Chuck Spears had a severe case of gout all over his body, and was getting around the office in a wheelchair, trying to stand up and adjust patients. And Dr. Blair's story is that he approached him at a chiropractic society of Texas meeting one day and walked up to his wheelchair and put his arm around his shoulder and says, Chuck, have you had enough yet? Why don't you come to Ludwig and let us make some pictures on you and see what they've done to you? And, uh, of course, Dr. Spears' story is a little different. Well, so I consulted Bill, and I said, Bill, I understand you're doing some research work. You know, but bottom line, Dr. Blair uh, adjusted the, got a correct listing adjusted. Dr. Spears got him out of the wheelchair within a matter of weeks, and Dr. Spears uh, took the Blair work and became a Blair practitioner. Uh, Interestingly enough, he used the Type II torque, which was the pre-1978 torque. Dr. Blair changed the superior torque on the A.S. Atlas adjustments. Uh, 1978 was the date on those notes. The notes that he taught me from were all copyright 1975, except for the Atlas A.S. adjustments, and they were copyright 1978. So, and we can go into the differences that there have been four types of Blair torque taught, three of them uh, before the one that's being taught now for the Superior Torque on Atlas. And the one he taught me was the 1978 version where the uh, ulna of the contact hand is 90 degrees to the stance line, which is the, the uh, track slope on the uh, same side. Uh, adjustments. Dr. Spears never switched from the type 2 torque, and we'll talk about that one of these days, how Mm -hmm. that was different. Actually, the ulna's were parallel to the stance line, and the contact was the anterior superior transverse, not the posterior superior. As Dr. Blair taught me for the torque that he taught me, which Dr. Gordon Elder and I are now calling a type 3 torque, is what Dr. Blair taught Mm -hmm. taught me. Type 2 is what Dr. Spear used. Type 1 torque is what the Pruitts were using. Mm -hmm. And the old torque was um, you took the track slope and you added that to the Atlas plane line. But as Dr. Spear said, and I wondered what they were doing because I never saw it again besides the Pruitts office, but they were still using the old Type 1 torque where they would draw the atlas plane line, mark it with a skin pencil on the patient's face, and then they would add the track slope to that, and that was the stance line. And um, Chuck said, if, with his graustic background, Bill abandoned that because he found it put it too high. Mm-hmm. It put his correction vector too high. So that was the type one torque, and the type two, was with the ulnas using only the track slope, uh, measuring that from parallel to the uh, caudal end of the headpiece, and then standing with the toes, uh, with the feet perpendicular to that line, and the ulna, both ulnas uh, parallel to the track slope. Mm. The type three torque that he taught me was based on the 1978 notes, and he had brought the ulna around 90 degrees to the track slope. So what he taught me was the 1978 version um, with the posterior superior transverse contact for the same side atlas uh, adjustments. And uh, he told me, he said, I don't ever want you teaching my work. You're going to change it all up. And so on that basis, I honored that. And I never took the instructor's exam, and I never... Show me an adjustment that apparently hadn't showed anybody else, which was C two A S adjustment with an opposite side lamina contact, and uh, I was uh, called on to teach that along with some of the other things um, that, at uh, at the convention one year. So that's how I came to be here. Doctor Blair then passed on uh, on uh, September twenty sixth of nineteen. 19- Eighty-five, uh, Mrs. Blair and the son-in-law, A.L. Clanton, who was an accountant, and I were the co-incorporators of the Blair Society in the fall of 1976. We were the initial board and we named on the incorporation papers three additional directors. Dr. Spears, who was Dr. Blair's personal chiropractor, Dr. Weldon Muncie, who was his designated teaching successor, and um, uh, Dr. Sterling Pruitt from Fort Worth. And we had the first convention of the Blair Society here in October of 1986 at the Blair Clinic. There were 19 people present. And uh, Dr. Muncy was going to present a standard Blair primary course um, but something came over him, and what he did was he presented the A S adjustments, and half the people never came back. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is not something Bill taught back in 1980. But Dr. Muncie and Dr. Blair visited on the phone for four, for four hours every Saturday night from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Texas time because that was Dr. Blair's peak intellectual time. And uh, they did that for many years, and Dr. Muncy went to every seminar Dr. Blair ever taught for 19 years. And I understand there was only two seminars. There was a primary in advanced, and if he gave a primary in Kansas City this month and one in L.A. next month, he went to both of them and took a new set of notes every time. So as he said, Weldon's paid his dues. And all the adjustments past what was on the 1975-1978 handout, the single side, uh, single misalignment adjustments, are things that Dr. Blair worked out the mechanics of after he retired in his midnight hours. And he would discuss those with Muncie. And um, then Muncie would field test them and tell them did he work, did they work or not. I found a note that was on half a piece of paper tucked into the subluxation specific, the adjustment specific, one of the green books, and it was dated July of 1985, and they were still working on the AAS, and they hadn't quite cracked it yet. Dr. Blair was having a, a torque halfway between the, the same side and the opposite side torque, and uh, but subsequently, the mechanism was worked out, and Doctor Blair, Doctor Muncy, field tested it, and that's what he taught at the first Blair convention. He didn't intend to, and uh, several people took umbrage that and uh, said, "This is not what Bill taught. You're changing the work. You've ruined the Blair work." And Muncy very carefully explained, "No, Bill. Bill came up with all these adjustments. I just did the field testing on them." There was one adjustment and one adjustment only that Dr. Muncy did uh, invent on his own by the time I was taking courses with him. I took the course from him in July of 85. That was the first primary that he gave. And he did teach that course with Dr. Blair's permission. And Dr. Blair insisted that I go to it because he was quite certain he hadn't taught me properly because of his own condition. But indeed, he'd included everything. And Monty just emphasized a few different things. And uh, so, yes, I was at the first uh, primary that Dr. Monty taught. And I don't know, I'm, I'm rambling by now, but that's how I came to be in the Blair work.
1: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.